Hi, I'm Trevor Elio. And I'm Julie Stern, and this is Conceptually Speaking, the show where we interview experts to uncover the concepts and patterns that help us organize our world. From farming to fashion, we can understand any field through acquiring, connecting, and transferring conceptual relationships. We hope this podcast will inspire teachers and students to design creative solutions to complex problems and accelerate innovation in today's schools. If you're interested in our work, you can find out more at edtosavetheworld.com. This week's episode of Conceptually Speaking features author, consultant, and Edweek blogger and moderator Peter DeWitt. Despite these honorifics, it won't take long to realize they don't matter much to him. In fact, Julie and I had to press him on how we'd like to be introduced. Funnily enough, I'd venture a guess that the same humility and groundedness are what make him such a phenomenal leader. Discussions about leadership often focus on externalities, routines, structures, meetings, professional development, the list goes on. What I loved about this episode, though, was Peter's focus on the interior life of a leader. Even in the best of times, being principal is a challenge, but now more so than ever. It's with that frame, Peter asked some compelling questions about the well-being of our leaders. We care about it so much for kids for social emotional learning. We're finally getting to the place where we care about it for teachers. So why is it that you can't be considered a role model when you talk about your own mental health? And I think that that's really important. And then you start seeing people on TV, like Carson Daly was talking about, you know, on the Today Show about his and Michael Phelps talks about it. And it's kind of like, you know what, we have to get to this place where talking about mental health and well-being is not a weakness. It's actually a strength. Is a hard? Absolutely. Like, I know when I put, when I talked about social emotional learning in the blog for Red Week, that was the topic pre-COVID that I got the most pushback from. Whenever I wrote about social emotional learning, which is what I originally was hired to write about for Ed Week, I got hate mail from people. I got tweets from people saying, you shouldn't be talking about mental health. Um, schools are not to talk about mental health. They should be focused on academics. And I'm like, wow, that's just, um, that's just really great to be able to say that. But the reality is it's just not true. The conversation Julie and I shared with Peter is equally personal and powerful. Regardless of your job description, it's filled with great advice about how to maintain your well-being. But imagine it'd be especially impactful for listeners who are also leaders. Enjoy. Our guest this week is author and consultant Peter DeWitt. It's great to have you, Peter. Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So you're most well-known for your work on leadership. Can you kick things off by talking to us a little bit about your perspective? I feel like leadership is one of those things that uh, even though it's a really well-explored field, there's still so much to learn and we have such a ways to go to figure out what it looks like being an effective educational leader in this crazy COVID time that we're in. Yeah, oh, for sure. Um, you know, I was a teacher for 11 years in some high poverty city schools. And I remember I was going back to get my, ma- my master's degree and my school administrator there, and that's what they were called, school administrators, talked to me about going back to get a school, uh, degree in school administration. And I said, no. I said, uh, I never want to be a school principal. And I actually said those <laughs> words to him, which embarrassingly, he was in the school district for 50 years, actually. So he was a pretty intimidating force. And um, I had talked to some guys at the gym who knew him and they were retired teachers and stuff. And I told them about the conversation. They said, what if you could be the principal you want to be, not the one you think you have to be? And, you know, I was like three, I was three years into teaching. I was not looking to be a school principal at the time, but those words never left me. Uh, And a couple of years later, I moved to Albany where I live in upstate New York. And um, I 
was teaching and I decided to go back to get my degree in school administration. And I would say that there was sort of this evolution for me because I became a principal in the exact school I needed because they allowed me to be the kind of principal that I wanted to be. And I was in classrooms every day. I went in to say good morning to the kids every morning. We called it my morning rounds. I went back you know, into the classrooms and stuff and I didn't have an assistant principal or anything. One of the things that I realized is that I was able to sort of make my own definition of what a school principal should look like. Uh, but I also understood early on that it came with a sense of status and almost, and not just responsibility, but the fact that I think people had this image of what school principals were supposed to be. And even when I would give new students like tours around the school, we would end in my office with their parents and their parents would say, I never want you to come back here. And I would always say, please don't say that. I, I see kids for good reasons more than I see them for bad reasons. Um, so I realized there was like this image. And then when I became a consultant, you know, it kind of assumed that everybody approached leadership the same way I did. Like I wanted to collaborate with my teachers. I loved my teachers. They actually, you know, I, I interviewed in front of a panel of 17 and they, you know, they chose me. So I always like felt that everybody was sort of similar to me. And, and that's when I realized that it wasn't the case. And that's probably my long-winded way to say, Trevor, that even though the research around school leadership has been around for many, many decades, there's been this sort of push and pull between the management side and the administrator side. And then the instructional leadership side, the, the side of, I used to be a teacher, but it doesn't mean that just because I left the classroom, I you know, really left the classroom. Like I, I really wanna see how, how does it all work? And I wanna see how different people teach and I wanna see how kids are engaged and, and all that stuff. But I don't think that um, all school principals have that. I don't think they have that goal. And sometimes they don't, um, unfortunately they don't have the opportunity or don't take the opportunity to be able to do that either just because of all of the pressures that they're dealing with with accountability or maybe district and central office pressures too. So I think that as much as there's research out there about school leadership, there are just so many different facets of it that we, that we focus on. And I wanna hone in on what I think, where can I best help, right? And that's where I focus on with leadership. But yeah, even when it comes to COVID, we know that that really just changed things tremendously as well. So there's, a, there's always that push and pull with management and mm -hmm. instructional leadership. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. So I, I'm thinking so many things as you're speaking. I mean, one, one of the things I love um, <clears throat> that you mentioned in your blog is about the, the sort of rightly so principles need to be critiqued and at the same time you know who's looking out for them mm. um and who's looking at it from their perspective because it is it is it, you know truly a thankless job and uh you know i was thinking about we all have a snowstorm happening here and, and i was thinking about my my parents sort of complaining about how uh, fairfax county which is where my kids go to school did not call a snow day because we're in virtual learning and you know this the family chat sort of blew up like whoa i can't believe they there should be a crime you know all these things and i'm thinking well Monday's already asynchronous anyway. You know, the kids don't even actually log on. My kids don't actually do that much anyway. So to like cancel the 20 minutes that my kid was going to actually do something as a parent, I'm kind of glad that they did it. Um, but, you know, it is just one of those things where it's you can't please everybody. You can't please all the different stakeholders um, that that principals have to to deal with. Um, and so I, I like that you also focus on um, sort of 
principal's point of view <laughs> and the supports of principals and things like that. Um, and so I'm just wondering, we have a lot of, of teachers out there who listen to our podcast, and I'm sure because they see your name, they'll listen to this one too. Uh, what, what advice do you have for teachers who maybe are in that same spot that you were in where they're like, no way I want to become a principal, um, but also maybe I could do it better. You know, maybe you could provide some like a pep talk or some some hopeful <laughs> outlook of how did you do it? How did you become the principal that you wanted to be, even though you had all the demands that an average principal did? Yeah, I, I think that um, from a teacher perspective, I did get to that point where I was thinking, as soon as you start thinking, well, I can do a better job at this, or I would do it this way instead mm. of that way. Mm. I think that's when you when you need to be able to step up to the plate. Mm. And I, you know, I was in my school administration degree. I think I was there for probably like two years or more. But I was also, interestingly enough, got hired to be an adjunct professor at the same time. Mm. I had this really cool learning experience going on because I was teaching during the day. And then I would take a class in administration. And then the class was like 4.15 to 7 or something. And because I was an adjunct, they always give you the crappy time. So I was like 7.30 to 10 o'clock, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. when I was teaching my, my course. And I just, it was so interesting for me, the learning experience all the way around. And I would say it was probably 2005 when I finished my degree, but it wasn't until 2006 that I actually went and to be a principal. And it seemed like all the stars aligned. I mean, I did everything right like i got hired in early april but i didn't officially start till july i actually was taking over for who was going to be the assistant superintendent so i would say my advice would be if you're going to be in it be in it like take the time and effort to be proactive i was fortunate enough that my assistant superintendent or well the principal i was taking over for when she was becoming the assistant superintendent she told me i could come over anytime i wanted but i was still teaching and one night a week i was going over to school getting to know the kids in the after school program, getting to know the teachers. My secretary actually handed me a yearbook and said, I want you to study the pictures of the teachers and she wrote their spouses names next to them. And by the time I officially started July 1st, I had taken two personal days and I spent those two days at school too. So by the time I started July 1st officially, and that was my official starting day, I'd already been there every week since, since mid-April. Um, and they knew that I was engaged. They knew that I, I wanted to be there. And they're, you know, I'm lucky. I'm, there's a sense of pride. Um, I'm the youngest of five first go to college. When I became a teacher, they like treated me like I was one step closer to God because my, you know, my family was just like, this is Peter, he's a teacher. Um, and I know that not everybody necessarily gets that same, um, they're, they're not honored in the same way. And when I became a school principal, it was very much the same way. And I had a, a a strong sense of pride, but also that responsibility piece. And one of the things that I think new principals where they make the biggest mistake is when they try to go in and change everything. Like they want to make their mark, right? So they go in and they're just like, I'm going to change this, this, and this. And what that really teaches teachers is everything you've done up until when I got here was wrong because I want to teach it. I want to change this because I have a better idea. And in fact, what I did was I tried to take time, get the lay of the land and figure out where I fit in. And one of the things that I did differently was go into classrooms every day. And why? Because they knew I was a teacher for 11 years and they appreciated that, they wanted that. So I really made the effort. And I think it's very important for newer people or people considering going into teaching 
uh, going into leading is that you don't have to, you shouldn't have to go in there and think you have to change everything. Like give people the respect to actually get to know who they are and what the school's like and the context and all that stuff. And then start to understand where you fit in, but also be collaborative. Um, I didn't have assistant principals or anything. And did I want to make changes on my own because it was easier? Holy cow, yeah. But most times it was, you know, I developed a principal's advisory council. I picked two co-chairs to run the meeting. Like, I feel like start making those in, when you can make those incremental um, changes at the beginning and get people to understand that their voices actually do matter. That would be something that's important. I know that like Ken Leithwood's work out of, out of Ontario, one of the things that he looks at is capacity beliefs and context beliefs. And one is, do we have self-efficacy? Do we have that self of confidence, you know, that confidence of self? But the other side is, do we think we work in a school that's going to support us when we try to do innovative things? And, you know, Julie, your work, you know that I've been a huge fan of your work and that's innovative and you know it is because not everybody's doing that. Not everybody has had the opportunity to do that. So when, as, as a teacher going into leadership, you have to think, are you setting the environment and climate where people feel like they can do innovative things? And that's something that I was naturally doing before I do Ken Leithwood's work, but I think that's something new leaders have to do. And, you know, it is, it is hard to be a middle manager. That's what they call it, right? You're stuck between the central office and teachers. And I think what I had to do is just understand that I was doing the best that I could within the position and the, the power that I had. Um, Michael, Michael Follin always says, one of the greatest statements he ever made to me is just because you're stuck with a mindset doesn't mean you need to be stuck or just because you're stuck with their policies doesn't mean you need to be stuck with their mindset. And mm -hmm. I think that's the thing. I think you have to figure out like, this is my box. And now where can I start making creative changes within that box that I live? I love that. It sounds like you would boil it down to sort of relationships, humility, and then of course, collabor collaboration, which you wrote a whole book on it called Collaborative Leadership, um, which I love. I think it's, you know, it's, it's not, top down, it's not grassroots, it's it's collaborative. Uh, I love just that. I remember reading your book and just thought, gosh, if more principals were collaborative, um, what, what a difference that would make. Love it, love that answer. Thank you for that. Thanks. So you said something a few times that I found really interesting, which is you were trying to figure out where you fit in. And I mm -hmm. feel like that was such an excellent way to think about a leadership role. Because I think it's very easy to, as Julie was sort of alluding to, come in and be like, where I fit in is on top because I'm the boss. <laughs> and through whether, you know, through force or fiat, I will make my mark. And I think that that's another sort of idea that, that many leaders kind of have. So I thought it was it was brilliant how you said you the first thing that you do is think about where do I fit in? Um, because I think that if, if knowing that myself as a teacher, if I were to see a principal who was who is saying and enacting that. That would really speak to me. So could you talk a little bit about what are some things that you look for? So when you are trying to fit in, what are some, um, I guess, uh, heuristics or what are some criteria that you look for that can help you make a decision about how you fit and how that might shape the sort of leadership style you adopt? Yeah, I know it's probably an old cliche, but I don't think I'm like the smartest person in the room, right? I think the room is the smartest. And so one of the things that I've always, and, and maybe that comes from my struggling background, you know, I barely graduated from high school. So maybe that's, you know, maybe that's a piece of it. 
And I always had to sort of figure, figure out where I fit into the greater good and, and find my place and that kind of stuff. As a, as a principal, um, I always looked at the relationship part. I'm, I, I might not be the smartest, but I do know people very well. And I think I, I pick up on body language. I pick up on words that people say. I guess, you know, and probably one of the reasons why I loved, I kept, I know I told Julie in, a, in an email one time that if more of my teachers actually taught through conceptual understanding and, and those way, using those methods, I probably would have been a much more successful student. But conceptually, that's what I do. Like I look to see how people interact with one another. I look to see like, what words are you saying? I'm curious. I want to, I really am curious mm -hmm. to know. I don't ever walk into a place saying I'm the boss. Even when I'm running workshops, I don't do that. I walk in and say, okay, what is it that they need? And what are the words that they're like, because when you're running workshops, something that worked on Tuesday might not work on Wednesday with a new group and there are certain things they pick up on. So that stuff always fascinates me. Like, oh, that's where they're really interested. That's really unique that they're really interested in that. And I would say that I went about that. I also asked a lot of questions. Um, you know, I did things through structures. Like I set up a principal's advisory council and my two union reps, I asked them to be the co-chairs. And that was not just symbolic because I chose two union reps to be the co-chairs, but it was also the fact that I wanted people to know that I didn't need to run every meeting, that I wanted to be a participant. I wanted to listen, I wanted to learn from everybody. And just because you don't have the same position or title as me doesn't mean you're any less than me. Uh, you know, my mom was a cafeteria lady uh, before my dad died when I was 11. And then she went back to work on a medical packaging plant. And when she was a cafeteria lady, she was not treated very well by people. And I swore that I would never do that kind of stuff. So when people come to me, I feel like I want to listen. And that's the curious part that comes out. Like I want to know what the issues they might have are. And when, um, when I was a principal, I would pay attention to the conversations that were happening in the hallways. I would hear people talking mm -hmm. about literacy practices. I'd go back to my office and find a good article on literacy and send it out. And I would say things like, I heard a bunch of you talking about literacy. Well, no, it was two people that were actually talking about it. But they didn't know that. <laughs> talk to each other and say, were you talking about literacy? Um, if anything, I guilted them. They're like, I wasn't talking about literacy. Um, but I would, you know, I would talk about, I would, I would flip that kind of stuff out. And then we would talk about it at faculty meetings. And then, you know, even, even as a, probably, it was probably four years into my leadership, I started flipping my faculty meetings back in like 2011, because teachers were saying, we don't have a voice in our own learning. And mm -hmm. at the time I had a blog, I started writing the Finding Common Ground blog for Education Week. And I was always a rule follower. Like, that's the crazy thing. I was always the rule follower. But when New York State started to do things with high stakes testing, tying it to teacher evaluation and all that stuff, I actually was one of eight principals in New York State to write a letter against the state education department. And then I started writing in the blog about how the th stuff just didn't make sense. Why were you doing this? Like, why would you tie high stakes testing to teacher evaluation? Why do I have to have a point scale for when I do walkthroughs? So part of that, do Trevor, it, that balances out too. It makes it easier to ask questions and make it makes it easier for me to be vulnerable with people because they also know that I'm trying to stick up for them at the same time. So on one hand, I could be the one being their advocate, 
But on the other hand, I could turn around and ask them questions about why are you doing this? Like, why, why did you choose to do it that way? Um, and I think those are, those are pieces probably lend, which went really well for me as a leader. The other thing is as many times as I could, and I'm sure I wasn't always successful, I always go in with a non-judgmental attitude because just because it's not the way I did it doesn't mean it's not a good way to do it. And I think as a leader, if you go in with a judgment, um, and I always, I don't have a good poker face, so if I have a plan, <laughs> I can, they can but I think when you go in with a non-judgmental attitude and ask questions from that perspective, um, it, it makes, it, it helps people become more open because they also have learned that you're not going to come back and hit them with something that you're really just asking questions and being curious because you're really just curious. Uh, I think that helps. I think that helps a lot too with that openness when you're going in. I also tend to be a, a pretty open book. Um, I still have teachers. I still talk to a bunch of my teachers and I feel really old because I have elementary school students from when I was a principal who are now teachers and stuff. So that's crazy. <laughs> but I used to send out really thoughtful emails. Like if I made a mistake and I'd made money, I actually apologized mm. to everybody. I would say, I am really sorry about how yesterday went. Um, I take ownership or responsibility for the actions, or I'm really sorry that I made a quick decision and I did that. That wasn't mm. fair to everybody. And I was actually open and honest about that. Mm. Mm. So I think that helps too. Mm. Again, that humility is, is incredible. I keep hearing that theme. We always ask our guests to uh, sort of give us three words to kind of anchor our concepts. I mean, excuse me, anchor our conversations. And, uh, you know, you we talked about the first one, which is leadership. And then you said your other two are engagement and well-being. And I want to know if it's okay with you to jump to the third, yeah. because where you were talking about curiosity, withholding judgment, uh, somewhat gets at the idea of meditation, which I know just from your blogs and things of that nature that you do that. Um, so I'm curious if you could talk about well-being and why you chose that as one of the, the anchor concepts to, to talk about today. Um, I'm sure there are deep-seated reasons that go back to childhood. <laughs> <laughs> um, well-being has always been a big deal for me. I, I mean, I think I've been always, I, I've always been honest about the fact that I, you know, I was retained in elementary school. My dad died when I was in fifth grade. And then um, I was, re I actually graduated fourth from last in my class from high school. So I barely graduated. I dropped out of two community colleges and then went on to a third. And that's where I like started to find myself. And I was 21 at the time. Hmm. And I think during those periods, when you go through like the crisis of losing a parent and, you know, my mom never remarried or anything. And, and uh, I think when you go through all of that stuff, you sort of, you almost have this trauma aspect, mm -hmm. but you don't want to call it that because like in many ways, my life was very good. Um, mm -hmm. My mom still lives in the house my dad built and you know, she lives an hour north of me. I mean, my siblings, we all, we, we all get along. But there is that sense of the emotional side that I feel like if you don't get that tight, if you don't get that understood, no matter how much you work is not going to, is not going to help. And for, for many years, and I think it's also because, um, you know, I'm openly gay and, and I've been with my partner for 20 years, but it wasn't for about four years, I was actually closeted when I was figuring it all out. And I think when you're going through all of that kind of stuff, um, one of the things that I did as a former struggling learner when, when my partner and I started to get together 
is that, you know, I was teaching, I went back to get my master's degree, and then I went to get my school administration degree, and then I became a principal, and then I was an adjunct at the same time, and then I was, I went to get my doctorate, and then I was, you know, going to write for Education Week, and then I started writing books, and my doctoral work got, you know, uh, published in a book, and, and that kind of stuff, and there was always this, like, what's the next thing, and my, my partner, Doug, looked at me one time and said, I feel like you're still trying to, um, you're still trying to prove you're not the, the dumb kid from Queensbury. Like, I feel like you're trying to prove you're not that failing student. And he was right. He was very much right. And I had to really look at a lot of that stuff because you can really become a workaholic and work yourself into the, down into the ground until you start to figure out why you're doing what you're doing. And I feel like when you, when you start to take that time and you figure that stuff out, that's when you actually become a better person uh, better self, you know what I mean? Like, and I always, um, it's interesting. I was always told that I was like my dad. I didn't look like him, but uh, you know, I'm the one who knew him the least amount of time. I think that my family has always been just a good hearted family that really cared for others. And, you know, they had those kind of, those kind of strong relationships and stuff. So I think the helping part, um, that comes from it too. And just all of it. So the mindfulness, the well-being, for me, it's always been who I, I am. Like I've wanted to check in on people and make sure they're okay because I know what it's like to not be okay. I, I actually remember my high school uh, cross-country ski coach, Bob Underwood, who I still talk to to this day, at the awards banquet, he said, Peter DeWitt is the kind of kid that if you didn't bring in your sandwich, he would give you half of his. And I was like, <laughs> I never forgot that. Like I never yeah. that, but that's that's mm -hmm. who I want to be. And I think mm -hmm. the big thing is finding that balance where you care about other people's well-being, but you don't enable them and you don't become a doormat too. So there's that like fine balance stuff. Yeah, well, this yeah. Is therapeutic. I never get into this. <laughs> I love it. It sounds like you really paid a lot of attention to sort of your own interiority, which is I feel like something that's missing from a lot of the conversations just in general, but especially when it comes to leadership. A lot of the focus is on, you know, uh, systems, structures, um, incentives, all of these sort of like big macro level things that as individuals, we, we don't have too much control over. So it's really interesting hearing you talk about how your interior struggles and battles to figure out who you were, were probably some of the most formative experiences that you had. Um, so Julia had, I guess, kind of referenced like this, this mindfulness practice that you've sort of like been cultivating. Are there any um, practices or any things that you can sort of recommend to people who are, who are looking to dig into their interiority a little bit and do some of that self-investigation that's so important? Yeah, I started doing meditation about three years ago and I, I had tried it for years before. Like in our school, um, I remember back in 2009, we were, we actually did mindfulness with kids back in 2009. Uh, we were a pilot school and it was 10 minutes every morning. And it was really interesting to watch because there were certain kids that we saw, they would get up and go to the bathroom every time we were going to start. They found it uncomfortable. And it was really interesting to see seven and eight-year-olds just know that this is uncomfortable for me to do. I would say that as much as I was a proponent of it, I didn't practice it because I would sit down to try to do meditation. And it was always that I didn't feel like I was doing it right or my mind was spinning and, and all that stuff. And I always had sports. I was a run, long distance runner and, you know, I'm very active that way. 
And then I had been on the road about 45 to 47 weeks a year. And I was taking every job that was coming my way because I was honored to do the work. I was, you know, writing books. It, I go from the struggling student who grew up without a lot to, you know, being fairly successful, but I was running myself into the ground. And um, I remember it was one week in Texas and I, I was actually on a plane. I was presenting five days straight and I was on a plane four nights in a row. And I remember getting off the plane. I got home and I looked at my partner and just said, I need something to change. And he was like, <laughs> um, and he was like, Woo-hoo! you know, he, he was like, finally, because he was very, very patient with my incredibly insane schedule. I had gained weight. I was just, you know, I was drinking a little bit too much red wine. Um, mm-hmm. I was not exercising enough and I was not getting enough sleep. And I really made a decision at that moment that I downloaded the Calm app and and they were just so good about saying things like there is no right way to get it and you do it for as long as you need and that stuff and what became five minutes turned into 20 minutes or half an hour and um what would started out as five minutes became oh what if i started doing this in other parts of my life and you know i started to work out a lot more i lost 30 pounds um and then I would say though, that it was still very difficult to get in, in control of my schedule um, because when you work with a publisher, it can do that. And, and uh, when COVID hit, it was probably one of the best things that happened to me because it forced me to stop and it forced me to renegotiate and just rethink all of my relationships. So I couldn't have done that without that abrupt stop, but I also couldn't have looked at it in the perspective that I did if I hadn't been practicing meditation for years at that time. Um, so I would say that would be, that would definitely be one of my, my big things because it has definitely bled into other parts of my life. It helps me, I've always been a big fan of being proactive instead of reactive, but it makes me even less reactive because it gives me time to sort of think out before I send that email or think out before I make that phone call or, or even honestly meditation, when I was running workshops, it was all about listening and something changed for me after I started doing meditation, because it was almost like I just listened better when I was running workshops. Like I heard people more. It wasn't about me just going to say, here's my work and you need to do it. It was, mm-hmm. it was more along the lines of what do you need? And Let's talk about this and okay, I'm not gonna get to every slide that I've got on my PowerPoint, but that's okay because this deeper conversation is gonna be better. So in a, it, for me, it like did, it just bled into all of that. And I think that, that was a, a very healthy place. I was, I have been much more present than I have been in a very long time. And I enjoy the moments more. And, you know, in the past year, my sister was diagnosed with cancer for the second time. So I was able to be up with her one, one, one night a week, we had dinner because she lives near my mom. So, uh, you know, my bubble is very small during COVID. So I could, I could be with them. She has survived and she kicked its butt and she's doing, you know, my brother had a heart attack the week before Christmas and ended up with, with, uh, uh, you know, um, quadruple bypass. And then my mother-in-law unfortunately passed away two weeks ago. And so this whole year of COVID has been hard, but 
not only is it good to be physically here, but I feel like I'm much more present when I'm here. And I also, just given all of those kind of things happening in the past year, you realize that it's easy to complain about being home, but for me, the best thing ever is for me to be home and actually appreciated it. Uh, because I wouldn't have been, I wouldn't have wanted to be on the road during those times. Um, and it also makes me very thankful for the moments that I've had with all these people. So, you know, there's just so much of that. This is probably like way too Dr. Phil, isn't it? <laughs> no, it's no, excellent. It's fantastic. It's, it's fantastic. <laughs> is, I mean, it's, it's, you know, somewhat coming full circle to you, your Michael Flynn quote about, about like you, whatever circumstance you might be stuck with, you don't have to be, use that sort of mindset. Um, and I think you, you, so you reference mindset in the concept of leadership. Um, and then that came to, to the, the concept of well-being. I think it's really cool. I love hearing this, you know, part of this uh, podcast, I, I, I didn't get to say this out loud. I want to say it out loud, like on, while we're recording is really for me to catch up with like friends and, 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 uh, and to get to know people that I really respect and admire even better on this podcast and then other people can listen to that conversation. Because, you know, I feel like in these busy lives, it's one, been one of those cool things about this podcast is like, hey, I haven't talked to this person in a while. Hey, you want to be on my podcast and we can catch up. Um, but that, you know, I, I loved everything that you said. And, and we have very similar sort of tracks, uh, or almost identical time that you and I downloaded the the Calm app is weird. I was, you know, I was in in Singapore. Similar to you, I was traveling a lot, but it was like really far. So it was like, not only am I on planes all the time, but my body is supposed to be sleeping right now and I'm training people. Um, and I really sort of got to that point in a similar, similar to you where I was just like, something has to change. Um, and, and the, I, similarly, I tried a bunch of different podcasts, a bunch of different apps, um, back in the day, even M MP3s. So you guys, Trevor probably didn't even know what that is. Um, but, I, I had an MP3. <laughs> oh, grandma, how old are you? <laughs> So I remember even an MP3 of, of uh, meditation and things that I just tried. And I, but I think there was a trend, not just the call map, but a, around a bunch of different things that said, you know what, people are, people are feeling like they're doing it wrong. So it's just like, I just saw this trend about three years ago where it was just like, there's not a right way to do it. There's not a wrong way to do it. And actually your brain will go in other directions. That is to be expected if it doesn't like, are you sleeping? Um, <laughs> and so, you know, one of the things I liked from the call map was, I can't even remember who it was, but said, think of it like a mental pushup. Almost every single, because you're, you're into sports, I know Trevor is into sports as well. It's just sort of like every time your brain goes down some path, it's like a mental push up, come back, come back to the breath or whatever it is you're focusing on. Um, and so I, I like that. I, I'm, so every day I'm mentally pushing up because of my brain goes like all the different directions. Um, but I think it is, you know, I, it's something I try to get my husband to do just, just because I think it is one of those things that really gets you to be present, which is what you were talking about um, for sure. And I think that that relates so much to leadership and, and teaching. One thing, one question I have for you is, um, you mentioned that, you know, you have this sort of caring aspect, which I feel like a lot of educators do is what sort of drew us to education and we want to be there for, for people and we want to be there for our students, um, especially in the midst of COVID. How do you balance taking care of others and taking care of yourself? Do you have any thoughts about that? Oh, not very well. Um, <laughs> I, I, yeah, I think that's, that, that's one of the things that it, it definitely, for me, it's been more of a, like the family aspect, taking care of family, uh, 
My mom's 86. So I actually, during COVID, have gone up one night a week um, and I stay the night there and make sure she's okay and get stuff around the house and all that. Um, I think that I, I do the best that I can and I try not to forget myself, but that's definitely probably one of the hardest. And I wouldn't say my weak spot um, because I feel like with meditation, I, I actually work out almost every day, five or six days a week. Mm. Um, I actually had not cross-country skied in 32 years since I was in high school. And I picked up uh, cross-country skiing this year because Crandall Park, which is in Glens Falls near where I grew up, they have lit trails at night. And so like, I would say the best way that I take care of myself that way is that I've reconnected with, and I'm lucky, I'm fortunate to be doing it, but I bought a road bike. So I ride my bike through the Adirondacks when I'm up at my mom's, I leave the bike up there. Um, I bought a Peloton, uh, which, you know, in September and I, I do their yoga classes, I'll do their strength classes and I do the biking classes, but this cross country skiing piece no matter, I mean, it was cold yesterday. It was 12 degrees when I went skiing, but I, I skate ski. It's, you know, it's different from traditional, but um, I've been doing that for 10 to 20 K per day. And I would say that's where I sort of take care of myself. That time out in the, in the ski trails when I'm just by myself and I'm, I'm kind of flowing through the skate skiing. And I listen to, uh, I love Ludovico Inaudi. Um, I've gotten into his music over the years and I had him on my earbuds and I was just like, there's just that piece that comes from skiing through. So I would say that's the way that I take my, that's the way that I take care of myself um, as well as others. I will say that's a, that's a huge issue for, for school principals in the past year. I mean, I've talked about well-being for, for quite a long time, but I wrote a blog after I, I coach school leaders in California school leadership teams. And one day I was going in to coach remotely with one of them and um, they started crying during the meeting. This is like a, this is a full on strong group. And I was shocked, right? And that, the next morning I got up at 5 a.m. and I wrote a blog called um, Why We Need to Be Concerned About the Mental Health of School Principals. And it got shared 13,000 times in 24 hours. And it got read hundreds of thousands of times. And one of the things that I took from that is, holy cow, this is a topic we need to explore. But I ended up doing, I have a seat at the table, which is a web show I do for Ed Week. So I had Mark Brackett from Yale, Mark Greenberg from, from the University of Pennsylvania and Sharif Mackey from Philadelphia. And they came on and we talked about principal mental health. And I did surveys leading up to that. And the interesting thing was, so many principals said, yeah, mental health, well-being, totally important to talk about. And then I asked the question, how do you talk about your own mental health? And they said, well, we don't um, because we're, and people honestly wrote, we're supposed to be role models. And I was like, so mm. when did we get to a place where role, where it means that if you talk about mental health and well-being, you can't be a role model? We care about it so much for kids, for social, emotional learning. We're finally getting to the place where we care about it for teachers. So why is it that you can't be considered a role model when you talk about your own mental health? And I think that that's really important. And then you start seeing people on TV, like Carson Daly was talking about, you know, on the Today Show about his and Michael Phelps talks about it. And it's kind of like, you know what, we have to get to this place where talking about mental health and well-being is not a weakness. It's actually mm. a strength. Is a hard? Absolutely. Like, I know when I put, when I talked about social emotional learning in the blog for Ed Week, that was the topic pre-COVID that I got the most pushback from. 
whenever I wrote about social emotional learning, which is what I originally was hired to write about for Ed Week, I got hate mail from people. I got tweets from people wow. saying, you shouldn't be talking about mental health. Um, schools are not to talk about mental health. They should be focused on academics. And I'm like, wow, oh that's, just, uh, that's just really great to be able to say that. But the reality <laughs> is it's just not true. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, there, I, I do think that there is a sort of toxic discourse around, I, mean, I don't know if it's, if it's shame or this idea that I guess we sort of like in our culture, put individuals up on this pedestal. And the people, it's always this narrative of like the lone hero standing against the odds and the elements. And the stories of, you know, individuals being successful are actually groups when you look a little bit closer. I mean, like Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, any of those people, they never started out on their own, putting everyone else on their shoulders. Um, so there is, I guess, just sort of like this expectation that if you're going to be a great leader, you have to do it on your own. And, uh, you know, as, as any actual great leader, I think would say, that's not the case. So where do you think this, I don't know, like where do you think this belief comes from? Why do you think those conversations about social emotional health aren't filtered up more naturally to leadership positions, considering how important we're seeing they are for students and teachers? Well, that's what I would, I would, refer, would refer to as the dark side of school leadership. So as much mm -hmm. as I was collaborative and as much as I, you know, focused on the social emotional, you have to understand that there are principles that don't get that same sort of support. Um, and even within my district, for, there were times that, you know, central office would say things like, oh, that Peter, he just lets his teachers walk all over him. Now, my teachers don't walk all over me. In fact, I've taken on my teachers sometimes when I, it was me against them and, and we, had to, we had to talk things out. Um, but so there's that pressure sometimes from central office and or your district office to be the strong leader that doesn't do that stuff. You need to be stoic. And that's where I think some principals really lose out because um, if they don't feel like they have the support and they're not seen, they don't feel like they, it's back to what I was talking about with Ken Leithwood's work. If they don't feel like they work in a school district that's going to support them as they venture toward that piece, then that's going to be a problem. I've, I've actually worked with school leaders that their district off, their superintendent flat out told them, you know, that's why you get paid the big bucks. You need to be able to take that on. So there isn't that, there isn't always that support there. And that's why there are leaders that won't delve into those kind of topics because they don't feel like they're going to be supported by others. And that's mm -hmm. unfortunate because we are a human, you know, we're schools. We're supposed to be a place where we're human with each that's other. Right. And I feel like we yeah. need to be more human with each other. That's right. It reminds me of this Brene Brown interview uh, where she says, she talks about vulnerability. And I feel like most people know Brene Brown and they know that she talks about vulnerability and the power of vulnerability. But, uh, you know, what she says, people often the most common sort of misunderstanding, and you know, we love concepts and we love clarifying concepts, um, <laughs> is that vulnerability means uh, weakness. And that's actually, it's totally the opposite, that vulnerability means courage. Um, and one thing she said about that, that helps me a lot is like, when you are sharing your own weaknesses, your own struggles, your own, um, sort of difficulties that you go through, she says that you should ask yourself, what's the motive? Mm -hmm. If the motive is for people to feel sorry for you, then that's not vulnerability. If the motive is for you to show um, 
that that you know strong people struggle or you know that everybody has these types of of sort of self-consciousness or different things like that if, if your motive is to sort of connect with people and to to show them um, how to be courageous then that's a that's like a good example of vulnerability and I think that's that helps a lot with school leaders I think it's like if if you are to be like you know what I am freaking out right now about you know about COVID <laughs> like that's that's not that's not what we're looking for but that but for us to say you know I have had moments in this whole COVID thing where I've been really scared I don't know I don't know have all the answers you know but you <laughs> turn it around around like uh, you know I know together we're stronger and and you guys are doing an awesome job or whatever um but I feel like that's that's what I think most people misunderstand is that they like to talk about your mental health you have to be like well this one time I had this total breakdown <laughs> or you know <laughs> that's not exactly what what it is to sort of talk about your mental health but I think expressing um how we all go through insecurities and things of that nature is is powerful for teachers to hear. I think that's that's only helpful. Uh, do you have anything you want to say about that? I don't know if you you know. Yeah, I know. I just I feel like it's been really interesting for me because what I it was it was actually after I you know went through that moment where I started to do meditation. I actually wrote a blog about mindfulness, and um, I could not believe how much it got shared. I could not believe how much it got how many. Uh, people clicked on it to read it and I got private emails and I still get emails about it. And I think that shows the power of in my way that I want to be vulnerable is to put myself out there and say, this is how I'm feeling. This is what I'm doing about it. Like I'm a big fan of, I'm a realist. Mm. Like this is my reality. What do I need to do about it? Mm. And I'm going to take the actions to get there. I'm not going to wallow and that kind of stuff. One of the things that I need to be able to do though, when I'm writing, when I'm going to be vulnerable, I need to be able to say like, I needed some moments, I needed to think it out, and now this is the action that I'm going to take. And when I can write from a perspective of, even when I wrote about school principals and why we have to be concerned about their mental health, I gave the statistics, I gave the research, I talked about how it's a difficult job, and then I said, these are some things we need to be able to do about it. So I think when, when I talk about mental health and well-being, what I wanna be able to do is offer suggestions when I'm clear to be able to do that. And hopefully people will read that and then they can think about taking those same suggestions mm. and doing something with it. And, you know, that's, that's the piece where I think being vulnerable is really important. I used to do it with my students all the time. When students struggled, you know, they looked at me like that I'm the teacher and therefore I must never have struggled in my life. It was really important for me to share with them that I was a struggling learner, that I was retained when that, you know, I barely graduated from high school, but, and then they would look like, you know, but you're the teacher. And even with parents, I remember when I was a principal, parents would come in to see me and they would just say, you know, I'm really worried about my son or my daughter because they're struggling. And we would start talking. And there were times that I would share and say, listen, I used to be a struggling learner. This is, and, and that gave them almost a sense of hope because I did hear from parents to be able to say, you know, I actually have heard from people from like national organizations I know that said, I started looking at my son differently because I didn't realize you struggled. And I'm like, well, that's sad, but I think it's good too, right? Like, Sorry, you've been treating your son like crap for the past few years, but you know, I'm glad to help. I, I think that's where the vulnerability piece comes from. It's when you're looking to connect and you're looking to help out to somebody and be able to say, I get where you're coming from. Here are some things that I've tried. Let's try to figure this out together. 
because I don't want people to feel like they're alone. It always that that worries me. I feel like when when people feel like they're alone and they've got nobody else to reach out to, that scares me. And like I want people to understand, like let's connect. You don't, you know, you're not alone in this. Let's figure it out. Let's let's. I'm 100% responsible for my 50%, but I'll do the, you know, I'll do, I'll, I'll give you what I can. Mm. I guess that's the part because I feel like if, if I see somebody who feels alone and I don't connect with them, who, what if nobody else does? Mm. Mm. The case. I, I love how you bring up using suggestions and things that you're trying yourself as a means to not only offer support, but also to connect to say, I wanna go on this journey with you to implement or figure this thing out. Because I also think whether you're a principal or a teacher, you know, education is a helping profession. And there's a lot of guilt that's associated with doing something for yourself um, instead of only thinking about others. And like we were saying earlier, that interior work can, can be incredibly powerful and transformational to make you a more effective leader and also you know a person who has more well-being. So I just really like that idea of, of putting forth suggestions that you can explore with people um, together as a way to kind of connect with them. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the strengths of, you know, when I'm writing a blog or when I'm writing books or presenting or whatever, it it's, it's not enough to just say, here are the problems. You have to be able to say, here are some process, here are some suggestions and really connect on are they going to work or maybe they're not, or let's talk about if they don't work, what can we do next? You know, that kind of stuff I think is important. Mm -hmm. That's right. I don't know if we have time to talk about engagement, maybe very briefly. Um, just, I would love to know what, what, why did you pick that word? So we talked about leadership. We talked for a while about well-being. Um, engagement, does it have something to do with the other two or what does it mean to you? Um, that would be awesome. Yeah, here's the good news. I think they're all interrelated, right? Mm -hmm. By doing the things that you've done, you, you, um, you maybe you engage people differently. I remember when I was teaching in high poverty schools, um, parents sometimes when you were fortunate enough to get them in, they really looked at you like you don't have any idea what I go through in life. And you know, you, you probably graduated top of your class and, and all that stuff. And I learned back then that I really needed to engage people in different ways because I needed to get them into the classroom. So I started doing that kind of stuff with with families and parents, because I also understood what it was like from some of my siblings who didn't, who also didn't do well in school. And they were treated differently by teachers or principals or whatever, when they were coming in as a parent. So I wanted to look and say, how can I engage families within my classroom differently? So they know that they matter. And we did a lot of awesome stuff because of a lot of awesome parents. And, and we engaged I engage families that were not necessarily engaged before we need to do the same thing as a school principal. Um, mm -hmm. If we are not engaging our families, what are we doing? And it really comes down to the fact that I was looking at the fact that we engage families in three different ways, or we communicate with them in three different ways. We send one, like we send the, the messages of here are important dates and times, mm -hmm. and that kind of stuff, which is important. They need to know that. But too often we spend all of our time doing that. And for me, the second one was dialogue. How do we engage in dialogue? Like parent-teacher conferences, or I used to flip my open houses. I would do a video, like a five-minute video about the Common Core or whatever was new at the time. And I would send it out to parents through our parent portal headline. And then I said, come to open house and you can ask me questions. And that created dialogue. Um, but also we used to send the, I asked, let's send report cards home a week ahead of time. 
So parents can actually see the report cards before they come. We're not just handing it to them and saying, mm -hmm. do you have any questions? Mm -hmm. um, it was really about giving them time to think. So the dialogue piece. And then the third piece is learning, like mm -hmm. science fair, makerspace night, you know, mm -hmm. arts activities, whatever it is, we need to communicate that way. And when we can look and when we can balance out those three ways to engage, I think it's really important, but it's all the other things too. It's, it's learning names. It was cool for me as an elementary school principal because I really studied the yearbook to get to know the kids' names. And I would go to the lunchroom and I would be like, hey, Julie, how are you doing? And Julie would turn around and she'd be like, how do you know my name? Like, I am just that good. That's why I know the name. Um, but Julie didn't realize her mom also writes her name on her lunchbox so I can read through. Like doing those kind of things, engaging kids and, and that stuff, like that's the fun part. Um, mm -hmm. So I think that's that's why engagement, when you're looking at well-being, when you're looking at leadership, I think it's about how do we engage all those different stakeholders? And it's not easy work, but it, it to me, it is so well worth it. Being a principal, I never thought I'd like anything more than being a teacher. Mm. I loved being a principal. Those mm. eight years, I I love those eight years. That's awesome. What a great like thing to end on just because, you know, we came full circle of, of, uh, what, how you never wanted to be a principal and you loved being a principal. That's really, really cool. Um, so we always ask people where can, I'm sure everybody who's listening to this knows where they can find you, but in case we have a few <laughs> listeners who don't know where to find your work, uh, where can they find out more and, and, and more information or, or contact you? Uh, they can just, uh, my website's petermdewitt.com. So they can, they can do that. Or they can look at me on Twitter at Peter M. DeWitt, uh, M as in Michael. So they can find me there, connect with me and let me know if I was too much of a Dr. Phil moment. Sometimes <laughs> in the You're modeling vulnerability, Peter. That's that's right. that's it was fantastic. What I was doing, but no, thank you both for having me on. This was, uh, this was very therapeutic. I feel so much better now. Awesome. Yay. <laughs> that's, that's always the goal, right? <laughs> we enjoyed the conversation very much and, and thanks for coming on. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Conceptually Speaking. We hope you enjoyed the conversation and are coming away with a stronger grasp of the concepts and mental models that help us understand our world. If you like this podcast, feel free to like, comment, or subscribe on your favorite platform. If you want to learn more or get involved, check out our website at edtosavetheworld.com and join our Facebook group, Learning the Transfers.